All right, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2 will be our text for today. We'll be pulling in some other texts as well. This is the beginning, as was noted a few moments ago, of our fall series. And this fall, we're going to be talking about the church. What is the church? Why, who are we? Why do we exist? What should we be doing? Uh, what does the Bible have to say about who we are as the church, and how can we, by God's grace, uh, rejoice in that, uh, where it's just something that's objectively true. We go, oh yeah, I don't usually think about myself. I don't think about us that way. So we want, we want that to happen, but then we also want to grow into being who God has called us to be as the church. So I'm really excited for this. I hope this sermon series will be a useful reminder for most of us of who we are, why we exist, and what we ought to be doing as a church. And for some, uh, this sermon series, you don't know it yet, is going to serve as the content portion of the membership class this fall. So if you've been coming for a little bit or a lot bit, and you're saying, I would like to become a member of Grace City Church of the Northeast. I've always needed to do that thing, and Saturdays are difficult, and that's when you guys have been having the class the last couple years, and that's hard for me. We're making it easier. All you have to do is come to church, which you're already doing, so that's great. Um, And if there is one Sunday you happen to miss, um, we are available online And the sermons are posted on our website every week. So you can get that that way as well if you aren't able to make it to all of these. But if you are not yet a member of our church and are interested in becoming one, um, the content from this series will serve as the content of the membership class. And then we'll just have a one-time hour or two um, conversation with whoever's interested in joining and have some Q&A time, stuff like that. Um, to get maybe a little more specific than we would uh, hear from the front on a Sunday. So that's what's going to be going on. We'll announce that Q&A as we get further into the series because we'll have it close to the end of the series. Um, And if you're interested in joining, you can talk with one of the pastors or you can sign up on the website. There is a membership page there and you can sign up for the class and that'll just let us know that you're treating this time as the membership class, okay? So this series is intended to be about the church in general. That's mostly what we're going to be talking about today is just what is true about the church, then hopefully also particularly our church. Um, And as we go through this series, we'll go from the broad to the more specific. So it's about the church in general and our church in particular, and throughout, we want to emphasize that the church is not our idea. Right? We're doing a lot of things, we're meeting here, and you might even be here and be like, Ben, this is, well, most of you have been here long enough to know that we're uh, sinners here too. But if you haven't figured that out yet, you're like, this is the best church ever. This is so cool. They have figured it out. Uh, I'm, I shouldn't disappoint you this early in the process, or maybe I should. <laughs> Uh, We haven't figured it out. We didn't figure it out. It's not like when the Grace Bible Church of the Northeast was founded some 70 years ago that finally it was figured out. Or that when, a name some of you may remember, when Ian McConnell came here in 2005, that he had figured it out. And now we have figured it out. Or that since I've been the main preacher here for the last six years, 
that now we've figured it out. We haven't figured it out. And, and we're, there's no big change that's coming in the next year that's going to make it so that we figure it out either. We want to build on what God has said himself in his word about what the church is. If we have finally figured it out and we're the ones doing it right, that's the one for sure way you know we're doing it wrong. And you shouldn't be here. <laughs> None of us should be here. So we don't want to say, like, we figured it out, we have it all under control, we know how it works, we're going to do all the right things in all the right ways, and everything's just going to go great. Again, if you've been here any length of time, you know that that's not the case. And so we didn't invent the church, we didn't finally figure it out. We want to look and keep looking to God's word to see what he himself has said about his church, about what it is, about what it's supposed to be doing and about where it fits in the big story of the Bible and of redemption through Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus himself promised to build his church. So any building that we do is building on him, our foundation, our cornerstone, and it's building with him. And since he himself promised to build his church, we would do well to understand what he and his followers said about it. And so that's what we want to be doing. We stand in a long stream of followers of Jesus. People have been gathering in community to preach and sing and pray and serve and build up one another and reach out to the lost and baptize and share the Lord's table for almost 2,000 years. And so we hope that in this series, um, we'll maybe learn some things But more than learning some new facts to have in our heads, we want to grow in our love for the Lord and his plan for his people. So we hope that it's informative and transformative. We want to know what the Bible teaches about the church and why we value it so highly, but we also hope that each one of us will love Jesus more and love his church more at the end of the series than we do now. And so for, even for those of you who've been here for a while and go like, okay, Sermon on the Church, I know what that's about. I know what we're about. I know why we do all the things that we do. That's great. Um, I feel like I'm kind of in that spot, and I know that I need to be refreshed in what the church is, the great privilege of being part of it, and the mission that Christ has given us. So with that as kind of the setup, I want to read Ephesians 2. So if you have your place there. We'll actually start a few verses before that. The problem with starting in the middle of Ephesians is I want to start at verse 1 of chapter 1 and just read the whole thing. And, and so I, I want you to want that too, so we're not going to do that now because I do have some things planned to say. Um, other than that, um, But maybe that could be if you've been reading with us in our other series, and now that that's done, and you're like, oh, you know, my Bible reading plan has been reading along through the major prophets. Like, great, your Bible reading plan this week can be reading Ephesians. And read it like the letter that it is, right? No one gets letters anymore, right? When you get a letter, you read the first page and go, well, that was neat. I'll check back in a week. Or when I have my reading time tomorrow, then I'll read the next page of the letter, right? If you get a three-page letter, a four-page letter, you read it. And then maybe you go back and go like, whoa, that part was amazing. This was awesome. This was great. And maybe there's even parts you commit to memory. And that's what some of you have already done with some of this 
letter to the Ephesians. So read Ephesians this week. It won't take long. You can do it in one sitting and then another sitting and another sitting and another sitting and benefit even more from it. Um, So just to kind of summarize the beginning, he's writing to the churches in Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, wishes them grace and peace. And then he goes on this beautiful story of God's love for us before the foundation of the world, that he chose us in Christ, that we would be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 15, he erupts, as he does regularly in Ephesians, into prayer. And so that's where we'll start reading is chapter 1 and verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the word of the Lord. Let's thank him for it. Oh God, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have told us what you are doing, that you have told us all the good that is coming for us because we're in Christ. We thank you for your plan from before time to save a people through Christ by the power of the Spirit. Thank you that you have made us part of it. Would you help us to see the glory and the privilege today that we have to be part of your church? Spirit, would you come and lead us, guide us, Teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. The big idea this morning is this. God plans for his people to be one with him and one another now and forever. There's a lot that we can say from here, and we're actually going to be pulling on several threads from Ephesians 2 throughout the series. So if your favorite moment doesn't get covered in detail today, let me know what it is. I'll make sure we get it in in one of the future sermons in this series. But the big idea is this. God plans for his people to be one with him and one another now and forever. Because in the beginning here, we're trying to answer what is the church. When you hear that word, the church, perhaps all sorts of things come to mind, right? If you grew up Roman Catholic, you certainly grew up thinking about the church as this institution, right? Headed in Rome, and the church does all sorts of things, and is responsible for all sorts of things, and tells you all sorts of things, and you think of this massive institution. That's the church. If you grew up a little differently, uh, you might think about the church primarily as the building, and I don't want to be the the language police. We're not going to be language police. We say, we're going over to church, right? No, it's not the building. It's the people. It's like, well, Yes, that is true. And so I do actually, in my own language, try to say like church building when we're talking about that or the Ashton Road building, uh, even to remind myself, not as a corrective to anyone who happens to say, are you at church today? It's like, no, I'm at the Ashton Road building. Um, I'm not, I might think that inside, but I'm not gonna say that outside, okay? (laughs) And I won't think it like that most of the time. The point isn't to to fix all the language, but it is important how we think, right? It's not the building. It's not even just the gathering on Sunday, right? So maybe we say, well, I know it's not the building, but on Sunday I go to church. And that's fine. If you want to keep saying you go to church on Sunday, great. Okay? I'm not necessarily trying to fix that. But when you think of church, what is it you think of? Is it an institution That's like this big worldwide thing exercising lots of control? Is it a building, a place you go, or that maybe someone else works? Is it 
a place we go on Sunday or even a particular time that we're gathered together on Sunday like now. Lots of different things come to mind, but it's very basic. The church is people. And you might even think we don't need an organization. We can just follow Jesus. I can just follow Jesus on my own. But even in the book of Acts, we find followers of Jesus organizing as churches, structuring themselves to build up one another and to move forward on the mission that Jesus gave us. So the church is the people. The church is God's people. One way to summarize the story of redemption, the story of the whole Bible and all of human history. So this is going to be big, and it actually is. One way to summarize the story of God's relentless commitment to his people is to hear him say, I will be your God and you will be my people. Think about what was happening way back in the garden, right? God created his people, Adam and Eve, and put them in his place under his good rule in a perfect place where they could flourish and do all that they were made to do and live in fellowship with him and with one another. That's what he made the world to be. Now we know that didn't last too long. We don't know exactly how long it lasted. In the Bible it lasts till Genesis 3. <laughs> and the serpent comes along and starts telling some lies. God's holding out on you. This perfect fellowship with him and with one another, that is not nearly enough for you. I've got something better to offer. And they fell into sin. What has been happening since then? We have creation where everything was good and right and just the way it should be. And then we have the fall and the curse that comes because of that and all the effects of that that we still feel in our bodies and in our city and in our world every single day of our lives. And the kids are like, I don't feel the curse in my body. Just wait. It, it will come sooner than you think. We've been feeling that, but God was determined as we learn in Ephesians 1 in his plan to save even before creation, God was determined all along to save a people. And it's his relentless commitment saying, I will be their God, they will be my people. And then saying directly to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. But how can that be when we have broken his laws and we have gone our own way? We have done our own things, not followed him. He's our good king and we're like, yeah, I don't need that. I'm good. I'll do me. How can we be his people? How can we be with him? How do we get to be part of that great gathering, the church, part of his people, both now and forever? It happens through Jesus Christ. That God, at just the right time, sent his one and only son to live the life that Adam and Eve were supposed to live and all the way down to us that we were supposed to live, but none of us have. Always obeying God's law. Always following God's will. And then for all that perfection, what happened to him? He was falsely accused, unjustly tried, and condemned 
and died on the cross, we're told from Scripture, in our place, taking our sins on him. And he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the grave in power and victory, showing his power over sin and death and Satan. And now he reigns. He's ascended, as we confessed earlier and sang earlier. He has ascended to his Father's side, or as we read from the text, he is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father, even now. One day he will return. And what God intended and what God has always been moving toward will finally come fully true. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the story of redemption. That's the story of our lives. We are God's people. Before we go too far down that, it's like, what is the church? Let's look at a definition of the church. The word translated church in the New Testament just means assembly. It wasn't an official church word until after Jesus and his disciples uh, used it a lot to talk about the church. It was just a general word for assembly, for getting people together. It's like, let's get together. And the word they're saying underneath that is church. Okay, so it's at bottom, it's a gathering, but it's a gathering of people. And more specifically, the church is the community of people who've been called out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, he says the church is the community of all true believers in Jesus Christ for all time. Or here's another one, Thomas Schreiner, his New Testament theology. It says, in every instance, the church represents those who have experienced God's saving promises. That story we were just telling. Who have repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's who's in the church. People who belong to Christ by faith. People who are trusting in his saving work, who hear that good news and go, yes, I believe. I'm turning away from my sins and trusting in him, trusting in his sacrifice and in his promise. The church is a community that is gathered together. It it is an assembly, a gathering of people. But what are we gathered for? We're gathered for Jesus Christ. We are gathered by Jesus Christ through the good news about Jesus Christ. The church is a community called out by and built on the gospel, the good news, that though we have sinned, though we deserve God's wrath, Jesus came and at just the right time died for our sins and rose again so that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him can have life with him both now and forever. And how many churches are there, right? I mean, how many churches do we even pray for today? How many churches are there right in our part of the city? And in that sense, there are many churches. In the deepest sense, there is one church. 
We actually confessed that this morning. Aaron led us through that. I believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. There is one church, and it's not the church of Rome. There's one. There's one church. There is one people of God. Yes, there are institutional manifestations of the church, the the visible church, but it is also an organism. It's not something that any one person or group can control. Jesus is building his church, and he is growing his church as more and more people hear the good news and believe and enter by faith. So it's an institution, but it's also an organism. And it has macro manifestations. That'd be like denominations. So bigger pictures of what the church is. Churches working together, being connected together. But then it also has micro manifestations like this. We're not the only thing going on in Northeast Philadelphia right now. And that's a good thing because there's like over 500,000 people who live here. And there's no way that our church could serve all the people of Northeast Philadelphia. But God has put us here for a reason and for a purpose as well. But each one of those, whether you're thinking of big manifestations of it or the micro manifestations of it, it's made up of God's redeemed people. And so that big idea again is this. God plans for his people to be one with him and one another now and forever. And his plan first is for us to be one with him. We're his people, those who have been redeemed by him, those who get in by faith because of Christ. And it's so that we will be one with God. We are one with God through Christ, through this gospel. And we see this all over the text for today. Jesus reconciles us to God through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and powerful resurrection. We who were far off, verse 13, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Jesus himself, verse 14, who is our peace. In verse 16, we are reconciled to God. Right? There was that broken relationship way back in the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. Their relationship was broken with God and with each other. But that is being restored through Christ. We are reconciled to God. It's through Jesus we have access in one spirit to the Father. That's in verse 18. The Father. We get to call God that. We who should be rejected as rebels to the crown. Our sons and daughters. We are members, verse 19, of God's household. Again, we used to be strangers and aliens. We used to be far off, without hope, without God in the world. But Christ has saved us, and we are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're members of God's household. We're part of this building, a holy temple that's the dwelling place for God, verse 22. And this is all because God Loved us. Way back in verse 4. We had in the first few verses of how bad we are and how much trouble we were in. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive together with Christ. 
It's all because God loved us and saved us by his sheer grace. It's the gift of God, verse 8, not of works. None of us can boast. And so before we even go down the road of like, here's all the things the church should be doing, and here's different attributes of the church and marks of a faithful church, and we'll, we'll get to those things down the line in this series. But first, today, do you know this gift? This gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because again, church is not a place you go. Church is a people that you are part of. And not because you sign a card and join. Not because you hear a bunch of sermons and go to a Q&A and fill out a profile. That's not how you become part of the church. You become part of the church, God's people, both now and forever. Not by being good, not by regular attendance, not by full participation. All those things are important. That's not how you get in. We could never do enough to be accepted by God. But the Bible tells us that Jesus has done enough. He has done what it takes. He himself, we read, is our peace. Do you know this gift? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Not your good works, not your ability to keep the rules, but in Christ alone. For those who are trusting in Jesus, Christian, have you forgotten this gift? As you walk through your day, as you walk through your week, have you forgotten that this is your story? You belong to Jesus. He gave his life for you. You are part of the people of God, his church, and you will be with him forever and ever and ever. I mean, think of our station that's right here in our text in verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is already true. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You think God has shown you a lot of kindness already? There's so much more coming. So much more that we can't even imagine it. But that's what God loves to do and what he will do. I don't know what you think about like heaven and the afterlife and stuff like that. And we see a lot about you know, robes and harps and stuff like that. The Bible paints a different picture than that. It's a picture of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, where everything works the way it is supposed to work. But the best part is that God is there. God's people are those who have been rec reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We are his dwelling place now, and we will dwell with him forever. That big story I will dwell with them and they will be my people. I will dwell with you and you will be my people. It didn't just start in the garden and get lost and it's sort of being worked on. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Speaking of the end, and one of these verses will be up on the screen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And behold, he says, I am making all things new. If you are in Christ, this is your story. This is your future. How many times do we get concerned about the future? What will things be like when we make it to the end of the month? What will things be like in six months, a year? And those are real things. And part of what we're to do as the church is to come alongside one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and give to to one another. And we're going to talk about all those things as we get into it. But the thing that will help us the most, the thing that will help our hearts be okay, is to know that in that far-off future that is 100% surely coming, there will be no sorrow. There will be no loss. There will be no relational distance. We will be with God forever. Already we are in Christ and he is in us. Where he is, we are. In those heavenly places, even now. We have been brought back to God through Christ. He is in us, and we are in him. We are one with God. But we are also one with each other. God plans for his people to be one with him and one another. And that is also throughout the text today. Verse 14, he's made us both one, and it's broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. He's created, in verse 15, one new man in place of the two. He speaks in verse 16 of one body. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Nine different times in Ephesians alone, the church is called the body of Christ. So we're both one, we who had been at odds, and what's going on in this context, in the text here, is the Jew and Gentile divide. And that's what was there in verses 11 and 12, that the Jews could say, well, you guys aren't really like us. You're not one of us. And Paul is saying that has Change. You used to be far off and now you've been brought near. And there is one people of God made up of Jews and non-Jews who believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And so, we used to be alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, verse 12. But now, in verse 19, we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of of the household of God. We're being built on Jesus by the Holy Spirit as a holy temple together, the one group, God's people. 
So up to this point, the Jews could rightly say, we are God's people, and kind of point and say, you are not, unless you go through all these rituals and join with us. But Paul is telling us here that something new is happening that had not been fully understood to this point. Look beyond our text just a little bit into chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 6. This mystery, the thing that hadn't yet been revealed, but now is being revealed by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, through that good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and reign. So the church is made up of believers with no distinction based on race, nationality, or history. It's of Jews and Gentiles. That's everybody. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And that's what we see at the end in Revelation. An innumerable people making up the one people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation there to worship around the throne. We have been made one with Christ, one in Christ, and because we are in Christ, we are one with each other, and we are one with everyone who is in Christ. Aaron emphasized this again earlier, right right at the beginning, across time and across the world. There's a way in which when we speak of the church, we are speaking of Everyone who has ever believed in Jesus or will believe in Jesus wherever they have lived in the world and wherever they have come from. We are one. That's the emphasis, the weight of the text. We are one with God, one with each other, all because of Jesus. These are objective facts. But our subjective experience often doesn't line up with this glorious reality, does it? We're one with every believer every way. I don't like them very much. Right? Boy, in that church, they do a lot of things that are different than our church. Right? They dress up and stuff like that. It's weird. And they think the same thing about us, but the other direction. Can you believe they have a drum set? Mm. They let a girl play it sometimes. And we can sometimes emphasize these differences, doctrinal differences, which are important, and there's a reason we believe what we believe and teach what we teach. We can be like, This is the one right way. All true Christians think this and believe that. And if you don't, then your church is like, I mean, I guess maybe you might get to heaven, but not like ours. Part of what this teaching does is blast that kind of thinking out of our lives. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John 17 He prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And he was praying for us, specifically. He starts out praying for his disciples. And like, just in case we're like, oh, that was just for them. And like, yeah, they got along pretty well at the beginning. 
John 17, verses 20 to 23, and these will be on the screen as well. I do not ask for these only, these original disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And their word has been preserved for us here in the New Testament, and we have believed through that word. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. To what end? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus put some pretty high stakes on our unity in him. Right? I want them to be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. Is our attitude, our approach toward those who belong to Christ one that would help the world believe that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Are we one in such a way that the world would know that the Father sent the Son and He has loved us like the Father has loved Him? This is Jesus' own prayer for us. You know, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's one thing that's very obviously God's will for your life, for our life together. We are one whether we act like it or not. We will be one in the new heavens and the new earth, and so we may as well get a start on it now. And that's where Paul goes with his application. He's been doing lots of teaching here about who Jesus is, what he has done for us, who we are because of what he has done for us. And then in chapter 4, here in Ephesians, so maybe you'll have to turn a page. Mine, it's all on the, it's on the facing page. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What is that calling? To be his people, to be one. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And how do we think about that unity? Well, we all have the same story, right? The Jews and Gentiles used to have different stories, but then in Christ they have been united to God and to one another. We all have the same story because we all get in the same way. None of us gets in by our goodness it's not that I was really smart and good and someone else wasn't and we just happened to end up here and so I have a reason to think of myself as higher than them. That's not how it works. We were all lost, but we've been found. We all were far off, but we have been brought near through the blood 
of Jesus. And what we have in common in Christ is greater than anything else we could have in common. One way we've talked about that here in the past is if you are a believer in Jesus, you have more in common with a Palestinian Jew, or right, Palestinian Christian, than a Jew living in Israel, or your next door neighbor who loves the eagles and flyers and fillies just like you. And maybe even the Sixers, if they can get their act together. What we have in common in Christ is greater than anything else we can share. It's also greater than any difference that threatens to tear us apart. What we have in common in Christ, because we belong to him, and so we belong to one another. And we will belong to one another forever. That's greater than any difference that could threaten to tear us apart. And that's true locally and across the world. Now, this doesn't mean uniformity. You can be a Cowboys fan even and be part of our church. You got to say amen or something. There you go. Yes, as Becky said, he's not the only one. Some truths are harder to take than others. And that's where you need to come back to this foundational truth, that what we have in common in Christ is greater than what could threaten to tear us apart. This doesn't mean uniformity, right? It doesn't mean everyone looks exactly the same, right? We don't all wear the same clothes all the time. We don't all have the same hairstyles. We don't all listen to the same music. We don't all go to all the same places. We don't all come from the same countries. We think very differently about some things, even important things. Doesn't mean everyone's exactly the same. And we'll talk more about the beautiful diversity of the body of Christ as we move forward in the series. But for all the difference, all the really good and healthy and beautiful diversity that there is and should be in the body of Christ, at the end of the day, and in the most important way, we are the same. We belong to Christ. He's our hope in life and death. And this should lead to humility. That none of us get in by our goodness or righteousness. It's only through Jesus. One of the ways that unity is expressed is through our shared faith. We're a community of faith. We trust in Jesus. We believe certain things that all Christians believe. That's why we confess the Nicene Creed together today. Followers of Jesus have been reciting those words, not always in English, of course, for almost 1,700 years. Ours is a Trinitarian faith. We believe in one God, the Father. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. And we believe in the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Ours is a Trinitarian faith. And we see in this text, we're not going to go through all the verses now, but as you read back through it this week, you see the Father, Jesus, the Spirit. It's like over and over again, you're seeing all three acting as the one that they are, the one God who saves us by his grace. Our unity with one another in life and in faith is all because of our union with 
Christ. It's through him we have access to the Father. His story becomes our story. We are united with him in his resurrection and one day in his reign. One other place that our unity is both expressed and experienced is at the Lord's table. And that's what we do every week at the end of the sermon. You might think, why do we, why do, we do that? Won't it get stale? Won't it get tired? We're just kind of going through the motions doing a thing. Why do we do this? It's a place where our unity is expressed and experienced. Communion is a moment where our reconciliation with God, our union with Christ, and our unity with one another come into sharp focus. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17. Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Why? For we all partake of the one bread. And that bread, of course, points us to the body of Christ. That juice points us to the blood of Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. God plans for his people to be one with him and one another now and forever. How will we pursue that unity? That's kind of first. We belong to him by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. By his grace, we are his people, and we will dwell with him forever. In his kindness, we are his people together. May the Lord give us grace to live according to this high calling by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you have made us one with you and one with each other. Would you help us to rejoice that we belong to you, that we will be with you forever. And that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with one another. Where there are perhaps even in this room broken relationships, God, would you bring reconciliation as we realize what is keeping us apart is not going to keep us apart forever so it doesn't need to keep us apart now. God, would you make us one even as Father, you and your Son are one. And would the world know that you have loved us like you have loved your own Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.